This podcast transmission contains childish language, adult content, psychological nudity, listener discretion is advised. And now for Australia's most exciting podcast, Life Down Under. Please welcome soon to be National Hall of Fame inductee and this evening's podcast host, Gray Stanton. One of the common threads that runs throughout the fabric of this long and tragic history of anti-Semitism is this terribly simple question of why. Why the Jews? Where does this come from? To get at that question, I think you have to trace the origins of it, right? You have to be able to understand where we begin to find the first historical evidence of a real hatred towards the Jews because of their Jewishness. And I think if you can identify where it happens and when it happens, and you can leverage the skills of an historian to analyze the historical context to understand, of course, then why it's happening, right? And when you do that, you begin to find some of the first traces of a hostility towards the Jews that dates as far back as the classical world of ancient Greece and Rome and Persia. There was something of a relative ecumenical approach to faith where one could recognize um, a measure of equality among different deities. For the Greeks, Zeus was the Roman Jupiter, uh, Athena, Minerva, Aphrodite, Venus, etc. But for the Jews, who had developed uh, this tradition of ethical monotheism, they could not accept that their God was the same as everyone else's. And so they were different. And so you then begin to see some hostilities develop. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to tonight's information updates, which include a major educational turning point on those actually responsible for the world's current state of affairs surrounding this ongoing scamdemic. We also have part two of Catherine Austin Fitz, where we covered part one in our previous episode titled The Great Reset, Freedom versus Slavery. So we need say no more, as you should all be very familiar with Catherine's work by now. For those of you who are new to our podcast, please go back to episode 6 before listening to this episode in order to better understand tonight's significant open source drops as we want you to not only have a complete understanding but in chronological order so you are truly prepared during these uncertain times. But before we proceed further, ladies and gentlemen, that last soundbite you heard was taken from a presentation dated 21 February 2019 at the US Holocaust Memorial Museum which was its first program in the Hate and Its Impact series. The gentleman speaking was none other than Brendan Murphy, distinguished Holocaust educator and former United States Holocaust Memorial Museum teacher fellow. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there is a worldwide offensive to permanently liberate humanity from the clutches of the satanic Kazarian Mafia, which is intensifying on all fronts. The biggest next move is to return Ukraine to the bosom of Mother Russia. This will deprive the Khazarian Mafia of control over their ancestral homeland of Khazaria, i.e. Ukraine. The fall of Ukraine will cut off drugs, child sex trafficking, human trafficking and other money laundering activities that support the fake Biden administration. Make no mistake, ladies and gentlemen, this is a fight to the death, as any aware human now realises. We are dealing with a satanic cabal that is actively trying to kill you and your family. For example, Ursula van der Leyen, the unelected head of the EU Commission, told the press recently she is in favour of scrapping the long-standing Nuremberg Code and forcing people to get vaccinated. 
In other words, she admits she's a war criminal who wants to carry out medical treatment based on lies and against people's will. The reason these people are still in power is because they are a million-member strong group of fifth columnists who control the very top levels of government in most Western countries. For example, the horror story now unfolding in Australia has its roots in the murder of Australian Prime Minister Harold Holt in 1967 on the orders of David Rockefeller, bagman Henry Kissinger. MI6 confirms that Australia was secretly removed from the British Commonwealth in 1973. That is why the Federal Reserve Board was able to fire Prime Minister Kevin Rudd in 2010 after he tried to stop a nuclear terror attack on Japan. This attack then went ahead on the 11th of March in 2011 and is known to us as the Fukushima disaster. The state of Victoria in Australia has seen a record demonstration of nearly half a million people against the Bolshevik pandemic measures while the press responded with drivel. However, state dictator Dan Andrews has lost his seventh member of parliament in as many days, leaving his government in tatters. But on the bright side, ladies and gentlemen, our sources that work inside MI6, they have stated that Australia will be liberated soon. There is also a move to liberate the United Kingdom. And on this front, a freedom of information request sent on the 16th of June, 2021, was asking the most basic of fundamental questions about the science on which their governments are issuing edicts to restrict the rights of the British people. The reply that they received was, quote, this information is not held by the House of Commons, close quote. How convenient. However, ladies and gentlemen, our sources again that work inside MI6 have stated very clearly that this response was finally allowed through because the UK military is aware the civilian government has been hijacked by gangsters and is taking corrective action. The real battle, though, will be the fight to destroy Kazarian Mafia headquarters in Switzerland and Germany. The US Space Command, formerly referred to as the Pentagon, state a major battle is now raging through the Black Forest in southern Germany and the Czech Republic. This area is well known for horrible hunting parties of the Cabal. The Rothschilds mansion was the hotspot for those parties where the Cabal hunted and raped and killed children in the forest. The Clintons have been VIP guests there as well. The United States Space Command has stated they are taking out a complex of underground bases in the region as they close in on the Kazarian Mafia headquarters around Lake Geneva in Switzerland. The battle to clear out underground bases shows how the war for the future of the planet is being fought in multiple dimensions. This is not abstract since the dimensions include finance, medicine, information, legal battles and more. So now let us look at the legal battlefront related to the attack of the underground bases in Germany. This is the ongoing Ghislaine Maxwell trial, which the Kazarian Mafia is trying to turn into a circus act, ladies and gentlemen. One of our colleagues states, quote, the largest pedophile trafficking case in history is being totally kept out of the mainstream media and being directed by disgraced former Federal Bureau of Investigation chief, James Comey's daughter, who is the lead prosecutor, close quote. This farce is being presided over by Judge Alison Nathan, who was appointed to the job by Joe Biden one month before the trial started. Of course, Joe Biden himself is a known visitor of the pedophile island of Jeffrey Epstein. Already so-called Judge Allen has granted Ghislaine Maxwell request that sensational and impure information be withheld. What media coverage there is of this trial 
shows they are trying to make it look like the supposedly dead Epstein and a few celebrities were having sex with sexually mature 15-year-olds. Look how blatantly the Mockingbird media deceives. The headline implies that a 14-year-old witness testified that Jeffrey Epstein trafficked her to President Trump. However, in the body of the article, they report that the witness testified there was no misconduct by Trump. Unfortunately, too many people only read headlines, not full articles. What is not being mentioned, ladies and gentlemen, is the systematic torture and murder of prepubescent children that took place on this island. Remember this image of the bloodstained mattress photographed by a drone on the island. Another colleague of ours that used to work in Langley, Virginia, sent us a series of very disturbing pictures from the Epstein Island of such things as children who had their faces ripped off. This is the sensational and impure information they are trying to keep out of the public eye. We decided to include one of these pictures because disturbing as it is, we need to confront the evil behind this once and for all. And that link will be made available in the description box of this episode. The other thing to realize is that this is not about what happened on one island. There's plenty of evidence of a worldwide network of pedophile torture facilities used by the Kazarian Mafia. We also know that super deep state agent Richard Branson is a citizen of Terramar. As a reminder, Terramar is this entity created by the Rothschild family for Maxwell that had its own passports, full diplomatic immunity, i.e. members were above the law, and control over the world's oceans. Branson is a submarine pilot with his own line of submarines. His Necker Island is a short boat or submarine ride away from Epstein's island, Little St. James. In any case, however, the Maxwell Show trial goes on. Rest assured, these monsters will be hunted down and killed, as per the promise that has been made by those within another group that we've worked with known as the White Dragon Society. And the White Dragon Society, ladies and gentlemen, are the protection element to the original bloodlines to the Emperor of China. The best way to finish off the Kazarian Mafia, though, is likely to be by cutting off their control of world finance. On this front, a full-on financial offensive is underway to bankrupt the Kazarian Mafia's privately owned BIS, the Federal Reserve Board and the EU Central Bank. International Monetary Fund Chief Kristalina Georgieva said in one of her blogs, quote, We may see economic collapse in some countries unless G20 creditors agree to accelerate debt restructurings and suspend debt service while the restructurings are being negotiated, close quote. What Georgieva failed to mention is that she was not talking about small developing countries, but rather places like the United States. So ladies and gentlemen, once this war is over, people are going to be completely shocked by the truth that will come out. Here is what a dear friend in Israeli intelligence said. Everyone who is heavily promoted by the matrix system is a distortion, misinformation to push humans away from the truth. If you think the news is fake, wait until you find out about humanity's history. Even in matrix schools, they taught us that the winners of war write the history books. If you realize that the world has been ruled by draconian, satanic and wicked elites, how much distortion is truly in our school books? Zionist, Jesuits, Kazarian Mafia, Illuminati, bloodline families, Archons, Satanist, Luciferians, Freemasons. These are the groups that are responsible for all written books in our modern civilization. As the old adage says, quote, the truth shall set you free.
Heraclit, a Greek philosopher living in the 5th century BC, once said, the truth often evades being recognized due to its utter incredibility. So just because you cannot fathom your government having ill meanings towards you doesn't mean it is not true. And on the other hand, I'd much rather be wrong than sorry. But it's up to you. You need to decide what you will do. But keep in mind, whatever decision you do make, you will not only make it for yourself. This decision will be made for your children and your children's children as well. Your decision today will shape the society your children will have to live in. Your decision today will predetermine whether your children will live in a free and democratic society or if they will be subjected to a surveillancing police state. Now I am determined to leave my children a free and democratic society and this I will fight for tooth and nail. And should it be the last thing I do on this planet, so be it. So once again, dear government, bring it on. Let's see what you've got. I am not afraid of you. You will not be able to shut me up. You will not be able to force me into compliance. Oh, and one other thing, trying to buy me off. Really? That isn't going to work either. So go ahead. Offer me a million dollars. Heck, make it a hundred million dollars. But you know what? Securing a future for my children in a free and democratic society, you could not possibly put a price tag on that. So when it comes to my stand on that issue, I would like to put it in the words of Margaret Thatcher. This lady is not for turning. You can bet on that. One day, in those early 1930s, you can read an inscription on the benches. Jews must not sit on these benches. You could say, it's unpleasant, it's not fair, it's not right. But after all, there are so many benches around. You can sit somewhere else. Of course you can. There was a swimming pool, and over its door, an inscription read, Jews are forbidden to enter. You could say, well, pleasant this is not, but there are so many places in Berlin where you can take a bath or swim, so many lakes, canals, it's nearly like Venice. At the same time, you can read somewhere else, Jews must not belong to German singing associations. So what? All right, they want to sing, they want to make music, let them just meet somewhere else, they will do their singing. All right. What comes up later is an order, really more of an order than of an inscription. Non-Aryan children must not play with Aryan children, with the German children. All right, they'll play on their own. And then you read, we only sell bread and food to Jews after 5 p.m. Right, less choice, this makes your life harder. But after all, after 5 p.m. you can still do your shopping. And that's how it is done, step by step, slowly. And they become acquainted with that thought, familiar with the idea that they are different people, that they are alien people, that they are the people that carry germs, that cause pandemics. 
And this now is a horror. What came later was something that developed immediately. Jews could not get jobs, they could not emigrate. And then, quickly, Jews would be sent to ghettos, to Kaunas, to Riga, to my ghetto. Ashes did not fall suddenly from the skies. It was hitting pattering in all those tiny steps. It was approaching until what happened here behind me did happen. Before the Western world can embark on a worldwide mission to eradicate the influence of the Kazarian Mafia, it is important to understand its incredibly evil, hidden history. All global citizens need to know that the Kazarian Mafia is based on a secret death cult, Talmudism, aka Kabbalism, Luciferianism, Satanism, Sabbatianism, and Frankism. Only by knowing the sinister origin and core belief system of the Kazarian Mafia can we understand why the Kazarian Mafia is hell-bent on systematically infiltrating and destroying each and every society and nation on Earth. We know for certain that the Rothschild Kazarian Mafia is planning on mass murdering 90% of all humans unless they are stopped and this intention has been admitted by the Kazarian Mafia officials in public documents. Even more than this, the Kazarian Mafia has actually carved their sinister death cult intentions in stone on an expensive granite monument, the Georgia Guidestones. All Western countries allied with the United States need to understand that the Rothschild Kazarian Mafia is by far the world's biggest parasitical invading organism in history that sucks the lifeblood out of any host country until mass death of the citizenry and the nation itself is attained. Left unabated, the Rothschild Kazarian Mafia parasite will destroy each host country it has infested and, if unabated, will eventually destroy the whole world. As the truth about the Kazarian Mafia diffuses to the world by the internet and word of mouth, soon the whole world and all nations and people will understand that a major global war against the Kazarian Mafia must be declared and waged. As the truth about the world's largest parasite of mankind spreads to every nation, Folks everywhere will come to understand that mankind's biggest enemy is the Rothschild Kazarian Mafia, which intentionally destroys every culture, nation and society that it comes to infest. To eradicate the Kazarian Mafia chieftain's grip on America and most of the world, we must decapitate the Kazarian Mafia from its elastic, endless fiat counterfeit supply of funny money debt notes. This criminal cabal, the Rothschild Kazarian Mafia, that has deeply infiltrated America, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, has done so by illegally and unconstitutionally hijacking our monetary production and distribution system, has charged us pernicious interest, usury, to use our own money and defaulted its value to steal our freedoms, property, our assets and the fruits of our labours. This Kazarian Mafia crime cabal has hijacked most of the Western governments by bribing, blackmailing, intimidating and human compromising many members of government, numerous officials, pretty much all administrations since approximately 1960 and deeply infiltrated law enforcement, intelligence and our judicial system. Now we understand ladies and gentlemen that the Rothschilds claim that they are Jewish when in fact they are Khazars. They are from a country named Kazaria, which occupied the land locked between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. As stated recently by Danny O'Shea, this subject 
should be taught in every educational institution and printed on every history book throughout the world. Only then you could hope to safeguard against their satanic plans for humanity. The history of the Kazarians, specifically the Kazarian Mafia, the world's largest organised crime syndicate that the Kazarian oligarchy morphed into by the deployment of Babylonian money magic, has been nearly completely excised from the history books. The present-day Kazarian Mafia knows that it cannot operate or exist without abject secrecy and therefore has spent a lot of money having its history excised from the history books in order to prevent citizens of the world from learning about its evil beyond imagination that empowers this world's largest organised crime cabal. At the Syrian Conference on Combating Terrorism and Religious Extremism on the 1st of December 2014, in his keynote address, Veterans Today senior editor and director Gordon Duff disclosed publicly for the first time ever that world terrorism is actually due to a large international organised crime syndicate associated with Israel. This disclosure sent shockwaves at the conference and almost instantly around the world as almost every world leader received reports of Gordon Duff's historical disclosure that same day, some within minutes. And the shockwaves from his historic speech in Damascus continue to reverberate around the world even to this very day. And now Gordon Duff has asked President Putin to release Russian intel which will expose about 300 traitors in Congress for their serious serial felonies and statutory espionage on behalf of the Kazarian Mafia against America and many Middle East nations. We now know that the Kazarian Mafia is waging a secret war against all Western countries, in particular the United States, using false flag gladio-style terrorism and, via the illegal and unconstitutional Federal Reserve System, the IRS, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FEMA, Homeland Security and the United States TSA. We know for certain that the Kazarian Mafia was responsible for deploying an inside job Gladio-style false flag attack on the 9th of September 2001, often referred to as 9-11, as well as the Mura building bombing on 19th of April 1995. The Kazarian Mafia has successfully waged an international effort to eradicate kings who rule by the divine right of God Almighty. Because the Kazarian Mafia claims to have a personal partnership with Baal, aka the devil, Lucifer, Satan, because of their sacrifices to him, they detest any kings who rule under the authority of God Almighty because most feel a responsibility to make sure their own people are protected from infiltrators and treasonous enemies within the gates. In the 1600s, the Kazarian Mafia murdered the British royals and substituted their own fakes. And right before World War I began, they murdered Austrian Archduke Ferdinand in order to start that war. In 1917, they assembled their Kazarian Mafia army, the Bolsheviks, and infiltrated and hijacked Russia murdering the Tsar and his family in cold blood, bayoneting his favourite daughter through the chest and stealing all the Russian gold, silver and art treasures. Right before World War II, they murdered the Austrian and German royals. Then they got rid of the Chinese royals and disempowered the Japanese ruler. The Kazarian Mafia's intense hatred of anyone who professed faith in any god but their god Baal has motivated them to murder kings and royalty and make sure they can never rule. They have done the same with American presidents running sophisticated covert operations to disempower them. If that doesn't work, the Kazarian Mafia assassinates them, as they did to McKinley, Lincoln and John F. Kennedy. 
The Gazarian Mafia wants to eliminate any strong rulers or elect officials who dare to resist their Babylonian money magic power or their covert power gained from the deployment of their human compromise network. The Rothschilds create international narcotics trafficking on behalf of the Gazarian Mafia. The Rothschilds then covertly ran the British Empire and crafted an evil plan to recover the vast amounts of gold and silver the British had been paying to China for its high-quality silk and spices that were unavailable anywhere else. The Rothschilds, through their international spy network, had heard of Turkish opium and its habit-forming characteristics. They deployed a covert operation to buy Turkish opium and sell it in China, infecting millions with a bad opium habit that brought back gold and silver into the Rothschild coffers, but not to the British people. The opium addictions created by Rothschild opium sales to China harmed China so much that China went to war on two occasions to stop it. These wars were known as the Boxer Rebellions, or better known as the Opium Wars. The money the Rothschilds gained from the sale of opium was so vast they became even more addicted to the easy money than the opiate addicts were to the opium. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I would strongly urge you to purchase the book, whether you read it by Kindle online or a hard copy titled The Opium War by Julie Lovell, which is spelled L-O-V-E-L-L, a 2012 publication. And on that note, see you on the other side of this break.
Kazarian Mafia, the most ruthless enemy of humanity. It is impossible to understand the ongoing controlled demolition of the American Republic and the entire Western world without knowing about the Kazarian Mafia. Only by correctly comprehending the sheer depth and breadth of the international criminal conspiracy carried out and covered up by the Kazarian Mafia can we the people begin to defeat them. Therefore, the following expose is provided to give but only a glimpse into the history of the utterly satanic New World Order being foisted on the world community of nations by the globalist cabal. For it is the Kazarian Mafia and their Talmudic predecessors known as the Children of Cain who now rule planet Earth as they have for 26,000 years via a worldwide tyranny of terror. It's a well-established historical fact that Kazaria was destroyed by both Russia and Persia, now Iran, in approximately 1250 AD, and with good reason. Many years of prior very stern warnings had been given by Russia and Persia with no changes by the Kazarians. The reason for this final destruction of the kingdom of Kazaria was that its rulers and its people ignored these warnings that were made jointly by Russia and Persia. Russia and Persia had repeatedly instructed Kazarian leadership that Kazaria as a nation and its people had to change from its evil, inhumane ways and stop parasitizing its neighbors or suffer complete destruction. Kazarians were known by those living in bordering countries to generally be liars, deceivers, cons, robbers, road warriors, rapists, pedophiles, murderers, identity thieves, and social parasites of the worst variety. And to make matters worse, their ruler King Balan did nothing to reverse this because he too was just like them. As they say, the fish rots from the head down. When Kazaria was finally destroyed in about 1250 AD by Russia and Persia, it had been literally terrorizing, robbing, murdering and parasitizing neighbors and travelers for over 500 years. These endemic Kazarian criminal behaviors were institutionally supported by their leaders and by the Kazarian culture. There was no rule of law in Kazaria, only the rule of manipulation, sociopathy, might, violence and evil. Kazarians had repeatedly preyed on travelers at their borders or anyone who tried to travel through Kazaria Traveling in or near through Kazaria was usually a fatal mistake. Women were often raped and then murdered afterward or, if young enough, taken as sex slaves. The exact same continues today, given the Ukraine was and is Kazaria. Kazaria was known by other surrounding nations as a lawless, evil nation that allowed the worst crimes against neighbors and travelers imaginable. Kazaria was known as the epitome of selfishness and evil from the king all the way down to the average citizen. It is now known for certain from peer-reviewed genetic studies done at Johns Hopkins that Kazarians carry absolutely no ancient Hebrew blood and are not Semites at all and never were. Kazarians' origin is believed to have been a hybridization between Turks and Mongols with absolutely no genetic ties to the ancient Hebrews. It is truly interesting that these Kazarians have absolutely no ancient Hebrew blood at all, none. 
although their leaders usually claim to carry ancient Hebrew blood and to be Semites when they are not Semites at all and have absolutely no ancestral rights to any land in the Mideast. About 80% of the Palestinians carry ancient Hebrew blood and thus are true Semites and hold an unabandoned absolute ancestral right to all of Palestine despite any Khazarian claims which are all based on lies and political intrigue. Thus it is fair to claim that the Israelis are not only not Semites at all, but are the biggest anti-Semites in the whole world for their massive theft of Palestinian land and a genocide against Palestinians. And despite this stark reality, top Khazarians immediately accuse anyone that criticizes them or Israel of being anti-Semites, an obvious fallacy. It is now becoming obvious to many that Israel is a deeply racist Khazarian state that is continuing the same anti-social criminal patterns that led to its destruction around 1250 AD. The site of the Khazar fortress of Sakel, sacked by Svetslav, 965. There are aerial photographs from excavations conducted by Mikhail Artemanov in the 1930s. So I ask you, ladies and gentlemen, why did Russia and Persia destroy Khazaria in about 1250 AD? The answer? The Russian and Persian leaders had had enough. In about 750 AD, Khazaria's King Balan was given an ultimatum jointly by Russia and Persia that he had to select one of three Abrahamic religions to clean up the Khazarian people. They repeatedly preyed on travelers at their borders or anyone who tried to travel through Khazaria, usually a fatal mistake. When the problem reached epic proportions and could no longer be accepted by the surrounding nations and peoples, the Russian and Persian leaders formed a coalition and delivered a stern ultimatum to Khazarian King Balan. This ultimatum was that Khazaria as a nation had to immediately change its ways and to do this, King Balan must select one of three Abrahamic religions and institute it as the official required Khazarian state religion. King Balan was told in no uncertain terms that the religion chosen must be indoctrinated in all Khazarians to serve as rules of conduct and as a basis for integrity and ethics that were previously completely absent. King Balan agreed and selected Torah Judaism as Khazaria's official religion. This worked somewhat for a while, but soon Khazarians were drifting back to their old ways of national banditry, murder and gross parasitism of others from surrounding nations. Instead of working to establish morals and ethics in his nation by making a serious attempt to practice Torah Judaism, King Balan and his top staff actually were inducted into the black arts and black magic of Babylonian Talmudism, better known as Baal worship or Satanism. Externally, this looks a lot like Torah Judaism and can be used as false cover, which it was. The reason this choice by King Balan failed to become a permanent solution to the Khazarian mass sociopathy was that he himself never really accepted or practiced only Orthodox Torah Judaism and merely displayed a phony outward appearance of such. Instead, he learned the black arts of Babylonian Talmudism and practiced the secret occult rites of satanic demonology to gain more power, wealth, and status. King Balan's secret worship of Babylonian Talmudism, Baal worship, Satanism, was well disguised by his phony outward presentation of Orthodox Torah Judaism as cover. 
His heart was not in setting an example and leading his people away from the cultural sociopathy, inhumanity and criminality Kazaria had become known for. At first, when the ultimatum was delivered jointly by Russia and Persia, the Kazarians backed off somewhat from their ways for a while, fearing destruction. But their culture remained the same, and their old ways of abusing, robbing, and murdering neighbours started back up again, this time even worse than before. Good morning. My name is Dr. Reiner Fulmich. I am an attorney in Germany and in the United States. And I have been working with my law firm on behalf of consumers and small and medium-sized corporations for 27 years. And we have mostly represented our clients against large global corporations, such as Deutsche Bank VW. And that's why we feel it is not so different from our former work when we now fight the people who are behind this global pandemic. In order to find out what really goes on, we formed a year ago, a little over a year ago, we formed, my friend Viviane and myself, we formed the Corona Investigative Committee in Berlin and we have interviewed 150 scientists from all over the world. And the questions that we wanted answers to is one, how dangerous is the virus really? Two, how good, how reliable is the PCR test? And three, how much damage do the corona measures do, both economically and health-wise? And the short answer is, the virus is there, but it is no more dangerous than the common flu. Even the WHO agrees with that. But the PCR test cannot tell us anything about infections. This is a lie. Anybody who says different lies. And finally, since the PCR test is the only basis for this pandemic, there is no basis. We have no pandemic. We have a PCR test pandemic. There was actually a study done, and the study was how much graphene oxide can they put in a human before it kills them. It was done in 2016. It's called Cellular Responses to Graphene Oxide Sheets by Dr. Sandra Vranek. So in the experiment, they were uh, taking samples of uh, living cells and exposing them to different concentrations of graphene oxide. And the amount of graphene oxide, they're trying to see uh, what was the response of these cells. And they broke it up into three tiers of severity. And these symptoms are very consistent what people are complaining of today with uh, COVID. With COVID. Or what they're calling COVID. What they're calling COVID. Um, tier one is antioxidant defense. Uh, tier two is inflammation. And tier three is cytotoxicity. What this study is, is essentially proof that they knew this would kill people before they injected billions with this toxic substance in the COVID. Finally, in about 1250 AD, the situation became completely unacceptable to both Russia and Persia, and they jointly decided to invade Kazaria and destroy it top to bottom. The current king and his court were warned by his spies and the top Khazarian nobility was able to flee with their great wealth of silver and gold before the invasion and destruction of Khazaria. It is hard to know all the details about where the Khazarian royalty went, but it appears that they continued practicing the black magic occult arts of Babylonian Talmudism and migrated to Italy, 
and other Western European nations. Kazarian history has been carefully excised from most libraries in the Western world and one must dig to find it. Fortunately, Solzhenitsyn documented a fair amount of Kazarian history before he died. The truth about King Balan and Kazaria's destruction by Russia and Persia for its unrepentant evil is a closely guarded Kazarian secret even today. And Kazarian leaders greatly fear the disclosure of this to the masses. These Kazarian royals who specialized in Babylonian Talmudic Satanism participated in child sacrifice because they believed it would provide them with more and more satanic powers. Solzhenitsyn, who was a historian, published a book titled Russia and the Jews, 200 Years Together, the first and only English translation of Solzhenitsyn's final work. A must read, ladies and gentlemen. These top Kazarians became known as the world's greatest impostors, usually hiding in other groups by claiming to be a part of that group's genetic and cultural heritage. Eventually, these Kazarian royals became adept at Babylonian Talmudic money magic, that is, making money from nothing by the use of pernicious usury. They often assumed the identity of Judaics and claimed to have ancient Hebrew blood when they had none and only carried Kazarian blood. Soon they became the Vatican's bankers and were known as Hof Juden or court Jews by the various kings, queens and royalty of the European nations. They were easily accepted by the old black European nobility families that hijacked the Vatican who also practiced Babylonian Talmudism and gained power from the satanic dark side using secret child sacrifice. Cutouts and tools. Will anyone be sad when they are swept away? Kazarians became accepted as cutouts and tools of the old black European nobility, who were also Satanists practicing black magic occult rituals. But it is clear that these Kazarians were easily accepted by the old black nobility because they worshipped Satan, just like they and shared in the secret black arts of occult rituals such as child sacrifice. Soon the Kazarians bred their way into the British royal families and other European royal families. These top Kazarian leaders became known for their expertise in political intrigue, human compromise and blackmail, as well as the administration of hypnotic drugs and special poisons to create deaths that appeared to be due to medical conditions. And the one they use today is induced heart attacks by way of a lethal injection using potassium Oride. They gained control over the city of London when Napoleon was defeated and proceeded to eventually gain control over all the Western world's monetary creation and distribution systems, which were all set up as private fiat systems with pernicious usury. These top Kazarian black magic occult masters hijacked the American monetary creation and distribution system by setting up their own private so-called banking system, the Federal Reserve System in 1913. This was done by using sophisticated bribery, blackmail and human compromise schemes to gain enough votes in Congress and the President's support to pass this clearly illegal, unconstitutional aberration, the greatest financial crime history. Kazarian kingpins established a beachhead in America. Once the Kazarian kingpins established a beachhead in America, they were able to buy up, bribe, compromise almost all elected and appointed US government officials. 
those that didn't comply were sidelined or driven out by supporting competitors chosen by the Kazarian kingpins. Soon, all the American political, governmental, corporate, law enforcement, military and intel systems were hijacked using the same methods. This has allowed the Kazarian kingpins to parasitize America, which in practice means making serfs and wage slaves out of most Americans with little recourse. America was then transformed into the Kazarian kingpin's tool to parasitize the rest of the world, as so well described by John Perkins in his classic book titled Confessions of an Economic Hitman. The Kazarian kingpin's motto? Buy everyone if possible, otherwise sidetrack them or kill them by any means. Money creation and distribution systems were hijacked by the Kazarian kingpins called the money changers by insiders every Western nation of the world. The Islamic nations refuse to set up banking systems with pernicious usury and that is why Islamic nations have been targeted for destruction by the Khazarian leaders ever since. The United States government is now being used to provoke any nation like Russia and China and some Middle East nations that refuse to let the Khazarians run their banking. Khazarian kingpins are called the leaders of the Rothschild Khazarian Mafia because that is what it is. Kazarian Mafia run by the Rothschild family banksters who have been alleged to be high satanic masters. And so, ladies and gentlemen, this brings me to conclude this topic. History documents what the Kazarians were as a people back in the period of 750 AD to 1250 AD before Russia and Persia destroyed Kazaria for their unrepentant and imaginably evil ways. Their rulers and their people in general were bad to the bone, suggesting that criminal psychopathology was institutional and culturally based. Others have claimed it is genetic too, but this remains to be studied scientifically. When King Balan claimed to have selected Judaism for his own as Khazaria's official state religion, he lied and promoted only an outward funny appearance of such while encouraging satanic black magic practices and unimaginably evil occult rituals such as pedophilia and child sacrifice and blood drinking. The question needs to be asked and answered. After well over 1400 years, have the Kazarian bloodlines and their leaders changed their ways at all? Are they still a bandit race of hijackers, impersonators, deceivers, cheaters, thugs and murderers? Obviously their top leaders have not changed at all and are in fact worse because now they have destroyed whole nations and peoples at will using the American military as cannon fodder to commit genocide by war or have only their top kingpins and their chosen Kazarians undeservedly placed in top positions of power remained so unimaginably evil and inhuman. Since Kazaria was destroyed in about 1250 AD over 150 nations have booted out the Kazarians for their evil ways. Now, because of the internet, there is a growing awareness that top Kazarians are anti-human thieves, mass murderers, deceivers and parasites upon the whole world. The Boycott, Divest, Sanction Movements BDS, is evidence of this growing awareness. Looks like soon the whole world will repeat the actions of Russia and Persia in dealing with the Kazarians. Yet the whole world is getting informed fast about this Kazarian problem, the world's biggest problem and has just about had enough of the Kazarian's abuse and inhumanity. It's almost a certainty that the Kazarian city of London, private Rothschild Fiat World Banking System, is going to soon be eliminated in the coming months. This alone will decapitate the Kazarian command and control and power base worldwide. Doubt this? 
then do some basic research on BRICS, the AIIB, Silk Road System, Shanghai Gold Exchange, and the recent erosion of the US petrodollar system with Saudi Arabia accepting currencies beside the US dollar. Kazarian kingpins always hold their timeless intergenerational grudge. The Bolshevik Revolution was revenge against Russia for its destruction of Kazaria. Approximately 80% of the Bolsheviks were godless Kazarians who raped, pillaged, tortured and murdered over 100 million non-Kazarian Russian citizens. These Bolsheviks did the same thing to Germans when they entered East Germany at the end of World War II. It's a fact that Bolshevism was Kazarianism in disguise, same for Maoism, with the removal and destruction of the Emperor of China. America has been infiltrated and hijacked by the Rothschild Kazarian Mafia, which is dead set on destroying the Christian and deist heritage of our founding fathers, along with our economy, borders, language, culture sex roles and marriage. Kazarians have become the destroyers of society and everything that occurs naturally, that is, the natural order of things. Unless Americans and citizens of the world wake up and displace these Kazarian kingpins from their high positions of control that they obtain by hijacking, bribery, blackmail and human compromise, even murder, America, the UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, the bastions of the West, are doomed and so is the whole world. As many of you may know, all of humanity is under a massive psychological warfare attack. And professor of clinical psychology, Matthias Desmet, who has studied the psychology of totalitarianism, has done an excellent job of explaining how we got here and how we win. In dictatorships, obedience comes from a basic fear of the dictator. But with totalitarianism, the people are hypnotized into obedience. In psychological terms, this mass hypnosis is known as mass formation. And totalitarianism always starts with a mass formation inside the population. A mass formation requires four conditions for it to take root. The masses must feel alone and isolated, and their lives must feel pointless and meaningless. These conditions have been growing for years with social media, mobile devices, and four years of massive division experienced during the Trump administration that made people on all sides feel more isolated. The masses then must experience constant free-floating anxiety, and they must experience free-floating frustration and aggression. This simply means there is no discernible source for the anxiety or aggression. And so the person begins to irrationally crave a remedy, no matter how absurd or destructive it may be. And these conditions were met in 2020 with the COVID lockdowns and the BLM riots. They are now ripe for hypnosis. And once they accept the experimental vaccines, they feel solidarity, which validates the whole thing for them, no matter how senseless. They are now changed no longer rational. They become more intolerant and cruel. So how do we win? Studies have shown that about 25% of the population cannot be hypnotized, and about 10% are highly susceptible to hypnosis. And Professor Desmet simplifies this even more for us. He says that 30% of people are now deeply hypnotized, 
and have irrationally accepted the experimental shots as their solution. 40% are not yet hypnotized, but will ultimately go along with the herd. And the rest of us are seeing things clearly. What the enemy is trying to do is extremely dangerous because if the masses ever awaken from their spell, they will demand justice. And so stress must constantly be maintained upon the masses until the mass formation is complete. We are the voice of dissent, and while we may not have much influence over the hypnotized 30%, we most definitely have sway over the 40% who will go along with the herd. We need to become the herd. Whether you think this all happened by accident or conspiracy, whether your reasons are based on religion or personal health, our voice of dissent must become one. It must grow and it must never end. We must spread the seeds of doubt to everyone at the gas station, at the grocery store, at work, at home, with the neighbors. They are desperately trying to provoke a civil war or a violent revolution because they can control that. Violence will not break people out of the hypnosis. It will only push more people into it. Telling the truth has become a revolutionary act. Telling the truth to everyone you meet will save humanity. So keep doing it. You can shove your vaccine mandates up your ass. You can shove your vaccine mandates up your ass. You can shove your vaccine mandates. Shove your vaccine mandates. Shove your vaccine mandates up your ass. Ladies and gentlemen, you must keep in mind there are layers to this conspiracy. At the core of the physical cabal, known as the global ruling elites, there is a group of 13 Archon families that have kept control of our planet for the last 26,000 years. They are responsible for the fall of Atlantis, for the collapse of peaceful goddess worshipping Neolithic cultures 5,000 years ago, and for the destruction of the mystery schools in late antiquity. They are the ones that maintain the quarantine and keep humanity hostage so that off-world entities could not intervene until now. They are mostly incarnated into key positions inside the Italian black nobility. Their leader was arrested in Rome on the 5th of May in 2012, removed from this planet and taken to the galactic central sun. He was the one that many members of the Cabal were worshipping in their distorted rituals so now they are worshipping something that does not exist any longer. About 2,500 years ago, the Archons created a special task group and infiltrated it into the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt. This group was responsible for mind programming and mass control of humanity through organized religions in the last 2,500 years. After the death of Cleopatra, their power was transferred from Ptolemaic bloodlines towards Julio-Claudian dynasty in Rome, then to Flavians, then to the Constantinian dynasty, then to the Theodosian dynasty, and then to the Byzantine Wistiniani family. After the Middle Ages, members of this group incarnated mostly into positions of power within the Italian black nobility families. The resistance has taken strong actions against this group in 2010, and it lost a lot of its power then. Anyway, this group has created the Jesuits, and the Jesuits are running the show on this planet for the last 500 years. Little boy has lost 
four-year-old, and we found him. That was quick service, anything else? Well done, Grandma. If only all problems were so easily solved. I know that feeling though. Um, I had a friend of ours uh, babysit my then six-year-old son because I had a business meeting, so I went off to the business meeting. I phone, received a phone call halfway through the meeting and she said, is your son with you? Yeah, it's a horrifying feeling. When your kids aren't safe, nothing else matters. Is that right? It doesn't matter. And these, these bastards, and you'll have to forgive me if I slip into soldierly language every so often. My wife keeps telling me, you've got to be a statesman. I'm going, but I don't want to be. If our kids aren't safe, nothing else matters. And the loathsome individuals that run this country for the time being and not for much longer have persuaded too many of us that we have to kill our kids. That's the depth of depravity that we face at the moment, ladies and gentlemen. It's, it's, it is beyond the ken of decent people. That's why we have so much difficulty waking them up. They just cannot believe that that level of evil exists where they want us to kill our children. Now, the sad truth is about 40% of Australians have been taking the jab. The good news is that means 60% haven't. So whenever you read the numbers that it's 70, 80% double vax, complete bullshit. Okay. 60% of us have said, no way, we're not doing it. It's not gonna happen. And we are in the ascendancy and we know this because their demands are becoming even more ridiculous every day goes by. In Western Australia, $20,000 fine if you don't get vaxxed and turn up to work. In, in Northern Territory, $5,000 a day if you don't get vaxxed and turn up to work. It's insane. And if they were in charge, then good for nothing Gladys Berrish-Chicklin would still be the Premier, but she's not. And Mick Fuller, that piece of crap that was our Commissioner for Police, who received two pay rises in two years, totaling $200,000. If they were in charge, he would still be the Commissioner, but he's not. We've got Commissioner Karen. Now, Commissioner Karen, she's a lovely lady. She actually is. She's a lovely lady. But do you really think that the assistant commissioners around her are letting her call the shots? Absolutely not. Stop looking for the saviours. I want you to look in the mirror and see that person staring back at you. That's the source of every solution you've got to every problem. Every one of us has to save ourselves. We have to save our families, our children, our town, our region, our state and our country. These are the people that are going to save Australia right here. And it's going to happen sooner than you think. It's going to happen sooner than you think. Because this has now come to its logical conclusion. They've run out of ideas. Enough of the bad guys have already been arrested. I don't know if you've been noticing, apart from the Australian politicians and police and the rest, they're all falling off the perch. Good for nothing, Gladys. Mick Fuller. Dan Andrews has lost three of his MPs. If these people were in charge, they'd still be there, but they're not. Look internationally. The head of Twitter, gone. NBC, gone. CFO, gone. They're all disappearing one by one. The dominoes are falling. We are in the ascendancy, but your crooked media won't tell you that. So turn them off.
And when you turn off the ABC and the commercials, because they're all the same, you don't pay for the commercials, so you just ignore them. But what you can do is you ring up Ita Butros at the ABC and give her a mouthful and tell her what you really think about the Australian Bolshevik Collective that won't tell the Australian people that they're being poisoned by the politicians, that won't tell the Australian people that the pedophiles are running the show, and the ABC has never once done an expose on pedophilia in this country. Now, why is that? I wonder. They're all in on it. Bingo. And so this is what we've got to do. We take the power that is ours. Every one of you. And now you guys get it. But too many don't. But we're getting there slowly. Sovereignty is born with you. Each one of you is sovereign in this nation. I don't care if you've been here 40,000 years or 40 minutes. You're born here. You're an Australian. You have a right to this land. And you have the right to exercise that right. Every one of us. Yeah, I look forward to the day, and when I do rallies in Sydney and things like that, where we have a lot of different backgrounds, and it's wonderful. You see Italian flags and Greek flags and all these flags along with the Australian flags. And that's our past, and that's important. But I'm looking forward to the day we see one country, one people, and one flag. That'll be the day when we have come together as one, and we become undefeatable. Nothing and nobody will be able to touch us ever again. Because when every Australian realises that sovereignty lies in your heart, in your soul, and nobody has the right to tell you how to live your life, as long as you leave everyone alone and don't break the law, then you have the right to live the way you choose. More importantly, you have the right to determine by whom and how you are governed. And if they to quote the American Declaration of Independence, become destructive to your needs, you have the right to alter or abolish that government. Now, how would you like the right now to sack any MP that wasn't doing what it was told? Who would love that? Well, that's what we're going to introduce to Australian electoral system, recall elections. So instead of having this farce where some buffoon is presented by a party, you vote for this idiot, ignores you for three years and then comes back three years later and oh look sorry we couldn't do anything so but vote for me again we'll try again next year how would you like this system you vote this idiot in and the moment they displease you you have a recall election you get to sack them now with that sort of damocles hanging over the head of the mp to whom do you think they're going to be responsive the party machine or the people that put them in their place that's what power to the people actually means in a practical sense. That's what we're going to be introducing to Australia. Recall elections at all levels. And so the, elect the elected representatives are responsive to you 24-7, 365 for the duration of their time in Parliament. That's what power in your hands means. You get to sack them and they respond to your needs. This is what Australia should be. This is the promise that we should have had and has been taken from us, but we're going to take it back. Yes. Now, as I said, the next few weeks, some things will be happening. Watch international news if you can, see who's being arrested and watch the dominoes. Start to watch what we call in the military combat indicators. Watch the ebb and flow of the water, see who's winning, who's losing. 
Now, next year's, the first three months of next year is going to be a little tough. Easiest way I can say this is that the, uh, the poison that runs through this country is so pervasive, it's not like a cancer we can cut out a section of skin or a section of muscle. The whole body is rancid. The Australian body politic, every aspect is rotten. The polity, the bureaucracy, the judiciary, the military, media, academia, business, unions, churches, synagogues, mosques, temples, you name it. There isn't one organ of state, there isn't one institution in this country that hasn't been penetrated by corruption. They get in at the leadership level and then they pit us against each other at the, at the base level. That's how they work. And so it's not a matter of just cutting out this group or cutting out that group because they all run, they're all run by the same people. What's going to happen is a very slow removal. One by one by one, we start to remove them. Now, to do this, we're going to, there's going to be a series of lockdowns next year, but run by white hats, not by black hats. So, Janta March next year, just be aware, what you need to do is this. Stock up on food and water, and make sure you can get through that period, just to stay off the streets, because things will be going on that won't be pleasant, and you, want to, you won't want to be there. And if you thought it was embarrassing watching them elbow each other for a roll of sorbet in the, in the uh, aisles of Woolies, wait till people start killing each other over a tin of baked beans. So, stock up food and water as best you can be smart be a good samaritan put some aside for that idiot neighbor that doesn't think for himself yet because he's going to turn up with his wife and starving kids and you'll do the right thing and you'll look after him you got to band together as a community and look after each other and 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 and, uh, and your friends it won't last long but it will be unpleasant unfortunately but there's nothing we can do about that this is the way it has to be done what about cash Hang on to cash as much as you can. What they do with it is beyond our understanding at this stage. Hang on to cash as much as you can. For those of you who are into metals, buy the metals, silver, small denomination ingots. Don't buy the certificates. Certificates aren't worth the paper they're written on. Okay? But stock up on food and water. The system is going to be replaced, repaired, redesigned, and re-liberated with as minimal disruption as possible. But you've got to get through that first three months. After that, there's probably going to be an election about April, May. My guess closer to May. And by then we will have cleaned up the system enough so you get the chance to have the first clean election in probably 50, 60, 70 years. Now, whether you join Australia One or not, that's, that's, that's neither here nor there. What's important is that you elect somebody that you know, like and trust. Now, the way that we organise ourselves is that if you want an Australia One candidate in your seat, you have to form the branches. You've got to select your potential candidates. You have to run the presidential style primary and then you select them. All we do at the head office is to vet them to make sure they're not crooks and spivs and pedophiles or whatever. But that's of primary importance. You hire them, you fire them. And the sort of good, decent A1 candidate we're looking for knows, first of all, they know nothing about politics. That's a real advantage. Because I get a lot of calls from people saying, I've been in politics for 30 years and you need to know what I know. And I politely reply, if you've been in politics for 30 years, you're the problem, mate. Click. 
But what we're looking for is just decent people who have a history of service in the community. And I don't care if you're the head chef at the local cafe or a cocky out in the land. Someone who has deep roots in the community is known, liked and respected already. The sort of person who has a history of serving the community. They get involved. They're down at Bunnings running the sausage sizzle to raise money for the cancer kids. Whatever it might be. It's in their blood. It's in their DNA to serve. That's what you want as an MP. It's a bit like jury duty. A pain in the ass, but somebody's got to do it. No more snouts in the trough. But if you want an A1 candidate, form a branch, select, and when the word goes out, pick the best candidate you can and then get behind them and we'll help you. We'll train you up, we'll back you, we'll do what's got to be done. Because come the election, we want such an overwhelming result, it never even gets to preferences. The average electorate's got about 100,000 electors in it, and we were on the results when the Australian Bolshevik Collective decides to call the election, they go, oh my God, Australia won. Australia won. Damn right, Australia won. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the news is mostly good, and it is a bit of bad news, but it's bad news for Scott Morrison, the state premiers, the banks. All those rotten sides have been making our life miserable. They're gonna have a very, very, very bad 2022. But we're not, we're gonna have a great 2022. This time next year, you won't believe the difference in the country. You'll be happy, freer, healthier, You'll be in charge of your lives and never, ever, ever again is someone come to your door and terrify you. They're going to be very polite. And if you don't like what they say, you just shut the door and send them on their way. This is your country. This is your life. This is your land. We're going to make sure you get it back. Thank you very much. Which, of course, brings us to the Mythos Mafia the papal bloodlines of the Jesuits, the real families who from behind the scenes control the world through religion, finance, property, land, and through control and manipulation of the markets of the world. The personages often imagined to be at the top are actually the second level of the human power hierarchy. Yes, the Rothschilds control massive amounts of wealth, but whose wealth is far greater than their own? It would make sense that some of these power structures date back to the height of the Roman Empire, the founding of the Catholic Church, and perhaps back into antiquity, and have moved pawns, kings and queens behind the scenes for at least a few millennia. The main family names are as follows. Orsini, Breakspear, Aldebrandini, Phoenicia, and Semaglia. All controlled through the Jesuit order and their Knights of Malta and Teutonic Knights, all based in missile-protected Borgio Santo Spirito in Rome. Pepe Orsini is in Italy. Henry Breakspear is in Macau, China. This is the true power, finally. This is the Guelph and the Ghibelin power over mankind. The Cecil family were controlled by the powerful Jesuit family known as the Pallavicini. Maria Camilla Pallavicini is far more powerful than Queen Elizabeth II. The Queen and Prince Philip are totally subordinate to the Papal bloodline, the Breakspear family and the Jesuit United Kingdom headquarters at 114 Mount Street. A study of who funded Elizabeth I with an astronomical amount of money to fight the Spanish shows that the funding entity was indeed the Pallavicini family bloodline. 
The most powerful man right now in the conspiracy over this world is a Roman by the name of Pepi Orsini of the powerful Roman Papal bloodline. The Orsini are also known as Orso and the ancient Maximus family. There is no one more powerful than this figure who is really the Grey Pope. The Papal bloodlines are the secret shadow hierarchy of the Jesuit order, even behind the Black Pope touted as the number one. These powerful bloodlines are the Breakspear, Semaglia, Orsini, Phoenicia, and Aldebrandini. You'll notice David Rothschild marrying into the Aldebrandini bloodline with the pretty Princess Olympia Aldebrandini. Another real head of this is Henry Breakspear, who resides now in Macau, China. Many of the Papal bloodline heads now live in Asia and India. What does that tell you, ladies and gentlemen? The current Black Pope, Adolfo Nicholas, was brought forward for the position due to the Jesuits bringing about of Asia as the next power player of the agenda. Both this Black Pope and the White Pope aren't of Papal bloodline. They are both commoners. These bloodlines constitute the most powerful families on the planet. The Grey Pope is the one in between the white and black, but unseen, yet controls the left and right hands of the Roman Catholic Church. So now we will reveal to you the names of the Saturnalian Brotherhood, the real 13 Jesuit Papal bloodlines, also known as the Archons, those sent here to rule over us or so they claim. House of Borgia, House of Breakspear, House of Semaglia, House of Orsini, House of Conti, House of Chigi, House of Colonna, House of Phoenicia, House of Medici, House of Gitani, House of Pamphili, House of Esther, and House of Aldebrandini. I strongly suggest as a matter of great urgency, ladies and gentlemen, you learn who these people are and study their family coat of arms of these leading Papal families. These Egyptian Ptolemaic dynasty rulers are in full control of the Company of Jesus, High Grey Council of Ten, and the Black Pope. Note that these are not commonly seen names amongst conspiracy theory writers and chroniclers of secret societies and powerful bloodline histories. I know because I've been assigned to three of these families by their own personal request during my career as one of the world's elite close protection officers. I disclose to you credible information on the Black Pope. The Black Pope, Superior Jesuit General, speaks at Loyola Military Fortress University in his unratified 14th Amendment, Little Rome, DC, United States Corporation. A corporation under international maritime admiralty law uniform commercial code based upon Vatican canon law and perfected by the Roman Empire. He lies about his power. He's over the Pope as of 1814. He only serves and works with the shadow Jesuit being the Papal bloodline Assinis, Breakspears, Aldebrandinis, Phoenicias and Semaglias. Adolfo is not of the Papal bloodline as some black popes have been in the past. One of the most powerful men today, as he represents three very powerful Papal bloodlines, is none other than Prince Urbano, Riario, Sforza, Barberini, Colonna, di Schiara. This man represents three very powerful bloodlines, Barberini, Sforza and Colonna. 
The next in power beneath the Jesuits is the Bourbon King, Juan Carlos of Spain, the Roman monarch of the world, the King of Jerusalem, and Sovereign Military Order of Malta Military Navigator. This is the true world's power system right now. Adolfo serves as a military general protecting the Zoroastrianism and Mithraism mystery schools. The Jesuits were created by the Papal bloodline Phoenicia during the reign of Phoenicia Pope Paul III. Loyola was commissioned by Alessandro Cardinal Phoenicia. The Jesuit general is referred to as the Black Pope at the Vatican because he always dresses in black. The Jesuits were officially founded in 1540 by Phoenicia Pope Paul III. Ignatius Loyola became their first general. Don Francis Borgia was the great-grandson of Pope Alexander VI and co-founder of the Jesuits. On his mother's side, he was descended from King Ferdinand of Aragon. The Spanish controlled the Vatican through the Jesuits. For the past 500 years, the Spanish Inquisition has controlled the Vatican by means of the Jesuits. All the Jesuits answer to their general in Rome and he, in turn, is content to run the show from behind the scenes without any publicly or public acclaim so as to not arouse the age-old Italian hostility to the Spanish. The Black Pope is allegedly, to some, the President of the world, but I doubt this. He is a part of the Arcana Arcanorum, controlled by the Papal bloodlines within the Imori. These bloodlines are the Omega Point of Control, these are the Phoenicia, Orsini, Aldebrandini, Semaglia, and Breakspear. Their war room command center is within the Borgio Santo Spirito, which is missile protected. Henry Breakspear and Pepe Orsini are in high control. Jesuit assistancy soldier James Grummer, SJ, controls the United States Corporation. The next confrontation should be within either Georgetown Military Fortress University in the United States or 114 Mount Street in Westminster, London, United Kingdom. Both control each corporation, the United States and the UK. It's about time the real enemy, which is Rome, was confronted. Not their little nobody, Huffyud and Sabbatean Frankist Talmudist slaves like Rothschild. It is time for a second real reformation to come forth and defeat this set of Papal bloodlines. Adolfo, however, is not of the Papal bloodline. He is a commoner like the current Pope. All of the above mentioned are part of what is referred to as black nobility. The black nobility are and were the oligarchic families of Venice and Genoa, Italy, who in the 12th century held the privileged trading rights, the monopolies. And again, 12th century? Not too long before the Khazarian Mafia, the oligarchs were well established across Europe. The Fondo is the collective financial interest of a family of the landed aristocracy or a family of the rentier financier aristocracy. The Fondo functions as a private bank or a syndicate of several fondi may combine forces to create a jointly controlled private bank or insurance company. The characteristic activities of the fondi involve generating income from speculation on gains from the manipulation of commodity prices through monopolies over some portion of trade in a commodity including raw materials and their means of transportation. Syndicates of fondi greatly increase their power over society by financing the debt of government. If they are to establish a relative monopoly of lendable currency, bullion or credit, the syndicate can dictate key policies of governments including the appointments of government ministries. 
Thus, they control policies on tariffs, taxation, public works, land concessions, special monopolies, and so on. The black nobility are and were the oligarchic families of Venice and Genoa, Italy, who in the 12th century held the privileged trading rights and monopolies. The first of three crusades from 1063 to 1123 established the power of the Venetian black nobility and solidified the power of the wealthy ruling class. The black nobility aristocracy achieved complete control over Venice in 1171, when the appointment of the dogi was transferred to what was known as the Great Council, which consisted of members of the commercial aristocracy, among them the infamous de' Medici family. Venice has remained in their hands ever since, but the power and influence of the Venetian black nobility extends far beyond its borders, and today it is felt in every corner of the globe. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, our modern banking system originated in Italy. In 1204, the oligarchic family parceled out feudal enclaves to their members, and from this epoch dates the great building up of power and pressure until the government became a close corporation of the leading black nobility families. And it leads a question, ladies and gentlemen, don't we know this from somewhere? The black nobility earned its title through dirty tricks, so when the population revolted against the monopolies in government, as anywhere else, the leaders of the uprising were quickly seized and brutally hanged. The black nobility uses secret assassinations, murder, blackmail, the bankrupting of opposing citizens or companies, kidnapping, rape, and so on. Hence their name. Who are these families today, you ask? Well, there are quite a few, and here they are. The House of Bernadotte, Sweden. The House of Bourbon in France. The House of Braganza in Portugal. The House of Grimaldi in Monaco. The House of Guelph in Britain, which is the most important one. The House of Habsburg in Austria. The House in Hanover in Germany, which is the second most important one. The House of Honezollern in Germany. The House of Karajordovic in Yugoslavia. The former House of Liechtenstein in Liechtenstein. The House of Nassau in Luxembourg. The House of Oldenburg in Denmark. The House of Orange in Netherlands. House of Savoy in Italy. House of Wetten in Belgium. House of Wittelsbach in Germany. House of Württemberg in Germany. And House of Zogu in Albania. All the families you will find on the Windsor family tree. All the families listed are connected with the House of Guelph one of the original black nobility families of Venice, from which the House of Windsor, and thus the present Queen of England, Elizabeth II, descends. The Guelphs are so intertwined with the German aristocracy through the House of Hanover that it would take several pages to mention all their connections. All, almost European royal houses, originate from the House of Hanover and thus from the House of Guelph, the black nobility. An example? The Hanoverian British King George I came from the Duchy of Lundberg, a part of northern Germany, which had been governed by the Guelph family since the 12th century. Today, the Guelphs, the Windsors, rule by dominating the raw materials market, and for years they have fixed the price of gold, a commodity they neither produce nor own. The House of Windsor also controls the price of copper, zinc, lead, and tin. It is no accident the principal commodity exchanges are located in London, England. Companies run by black nobility families are British Petroleum, Oppenheimer, Lonro, Pilbro, and many, many more. 
Another black nobility family are the Grosvenors in England. For centuries, this family lived, as most of the European families, on ground rent. Today, the family owns at least 300 acres of land in the centre of London. The land is never sold, ladies and gentlemen, but leased on a 39-year leasehold agreement. The ground rent of the Middle Ages. Grosvenor Square, in which the American Embassy is located, belongs to the Grosvenor family, as does Eaton Square. In Eaton Square, apartments are rented out at £25,000 to £75,000 a month, and that does not include maintenance costs. This is to give you an idea of the immense wealth the black nobility families garner from ground rents and why families like the Windsors are not at all interested in industrial progress along with the excess population it supports. This is the main reason why these noble families are behind most, if not all, of the wrong-headed pro-environmental movements of the world that ultimately and covertly, of course, aim to curb population growth. Prince Philip and Prince Charles are the most visible symbols of these movements, and both have often spoken with the utmost callousness about the need to rid the world of unwanted people. The black nobility are the founders of the secret society of our day from which all the others that are connected to and originated from, the Committee of 300. The Club of Rome, the Code of Federal Regulations, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, the Bilderbergs, the Round Table, all originate from the Committee of 300 and therefore from the European black nobility families. Among the top families, are the Montefiores, financial servants of the Genese nobility since the 1200s, the Goldsmiths and Mercatas, leading bullion merchants for the British royal family since the 1600s, the Oppenheimers, controllers of a large proportion of the diamond and gold mining in South Africa, the Sassoons, agents of the British Crown in India in the 1700s devoting themselves to opium production, the banking families of Warburg, Schiff, Mayer, Loeb, Ratzeville, De Menil, Spadafora, Schroeder, Von Thurn und Taxis, Von Fink, Wittelsbach, Lambert, Hambro, Lazato, Orsini, Veal, and countless others hiding behind the curtain of interlocking banking directorates holding companies, offshore banking empires, and freeport concessions all camouflaged out of public view. Nearly all of these rich, powerful families directly collaborated with central European fascism and manned the dummy governments of Hitler and Mussolini. After World War II, they went to work for Soviet or Anglo-American intelligence, sometimes for both. All of them play an active role today in the drug, political dirty tricks destabilization, and assassination operations at the various international mafias. Akira Manga was quoted Ephesians 6.12 For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. In the spotlight, ladies and gentlemen, they aren't smile emoticons. House of Borgia, House of Breakspear, House of Samaglia, House of Orsini, House of Conti, House of Chigi, House of Colonna, House of Phoenicia, House of Medici, House of Gattani, House of Pamphili, House of Esther, and House of Aldebrandini 
same names that we read to you earlier from the list of those that are of the Saturnalian Brotherhood. The likes of the Rockefellers are way down the ladder in terms of real power. The House of Braganza is possibly one of the wealthiest. These are the people that have control of all the natural minerals in the world. The mass of people on YouTube saying that the Rothschilds have $400 trillion without even looking deeper into the subject are bloody morons. Having the power to print money, ladies and gentlemen, is not where the real power lies. And believe me, I know. Controlling the available resources is. It's like I always say, do you think that Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Carlos Slim and the likes, supposedly the wealthiest people in the world, which they're not by the way, have more wealth than the people who allowed them to amass the fortunes they have? I mean, come on, seriously. They are legal personalities subject to government, not the power behind it. Just as an example of the wealth these folks have, according to Oxfam, ladies and gentlemen, it would take Carlos Slim 220 years to spend all of his money if he spent it at a rate of $1 million per day. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, the actual ruling elites are the Archons. They can reincarnate, hence their real wealth is in their power to control and manipulate resources. Money is but a byproduct. It is also how they control those like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett and Carlos Slim and even George Soros, etc. and the Rothschilds. The mere fact that they arrived here in their interstellar craft some 26 thousand years ago. I strongly suspect they are the ones that fell from the sky. Hence primitive humans at the time referred to them as fallen angels. I grew up in Philadelphia. I went to Wall Street uh, and had a very successful career at Dylan Reed. Uh, I was there from 1978 to 1989, and then I went into the first Bush administration as Assistant Secretary of Housing, Federal Housing uh, Administrator, and was there for 18 months, did not get along with the Cabinet Secretary, so I left. And in the process, I discovered um, what technology could do to make financing neighborhoods much more Productive. My vision was that government money was destroying neighborhoods, not helping them, and, and now entrepreneurs could take this new technology and finance privately. So I started an investment bank and broker-dealer in Washington named Hamilton Securities Group, and a couple years later we were hired back by the Federal Housing Administration to be the lead financial advisor. And that gave me access to incredibly rich databases about how all the real estate and land and uh, a lot of the mortgage financing and home building works in, uh, in America. America's just 3,100 counties. And so I got to build a very incredible wealth of databases on sort of how the money works by place in America. Then I entered a period where I litigated with the federal government for 11 years. The Department of Justice seized all the databases and all the software tools and I litigated with the federal government, and that's when it forced me to really dive into how the control systems were working. You know, when I was in Wall Street, I saw a lot about how the financial control systems worked, but um, since so much is rigged through the central bank and through government, it gave me a chance to really see how 
government worked on the covert side and how that related to Wall Street and Washington. I was sitting in my office in 1998 and I was litigating and dealing with what happened at that point was trillions of dollars started to get sucked out of the government. And in essence, you were watching a coup d'etat by financial means. And I realized the extent to which Washington and Wall Street were, were basically levering up the, gun, the government stealing the money. And I turned to my attorney and I said, you know, we're gonna have to find our way, a way to support ourselves by working for individuals. And she turned to me, I'll never forget it, and she said, good luck, honey. <laughs> But what you saw was, if you looked at the financial coup, basically what they were doing is they were stealing everybody's retirement. Now everybody's gonna retire in 20 or 30 years, but they were gonna steal the money up front. So by the time we got to where we are now, the money would be gone and they could say to the, turn to everybody and say, well, we can't really afford your retirement. When I was on Wall Street, we were in a world of what people would think of as, as sort of on one side, you had markets and monetary policy run by the central banks, and then you had the electorate influencing the fiscal policy in the government. And so you had a, uh, think of it as a two-pillar system. And um, markets were clearly managed centrally. So the central banks, in their control of monetary policy, could simply print money. So the central banks print money, and then the military runs around to make sure everybody takes it. And it stays liquid. And the economic equation is, can you make more money from printing than you have to spend on the military and making the system go? So I'll give you an example. In the 80s, we had a period of tremendous monetary expansion. And in the last year of the decade, it was 88, I think, or in 89, there was a huge fight in the Dillon Reed Partnership um, about how much money should be trade paid to the traders for bonuses. And I had a wonderful partner who did a study and he showed that in all the trading floor, so equities, bonds, you know, all the different aspects of the trading floor, if instead of having traders in the seats, we'd had chimpanzees, we would have made more money, okay? And it was very interesting because you'd go out to the Hamptons on the weekends and you'd you know, you'd be in the plane or the bus and you'd hear everybody talking about they were making fantastic amounts of money because they were brilliant and geniuses and smart and clever, but it wasn't. It was just simply the monetary policy floating the boats up, you know, but everybody was making money. So, so for example, you know, because a lot of the money comes from economic warfare. So you, you pump up the dollar, you're moving money out of the U.S. government, you, uh, you loan everybody in Asia as we're coming through this big change of globalization. You loan massive amounts of dollars and then all of a sudden you pull all the loans. So you throw them into a debt and trap and you pull the money and then they get a crash. Now your dollar's high so you go and buy in everything cheap. The governance structure that existed before the financial coup was basically you have the central banks running monetary policy, right? And then you have the sovereign government running fiscal policy, okay? And the citizens pay taxes to the sovereign government and they elect representatives who have something to say about how that fiscal money gets whacked up, okay? And then you have private central bankers and private interests who control monetary policy and are relatively independent of the fiscal. And what we've seen as you lever up the governments, because the, 
the less a government has information sovereignty and financial sovereignty, the more dependent it is on the central bankers. So as the government uh, have levered up with debt and lose their, their, their sort of informational sovereignty and their financial sovereignty, part of this is what's happened with digital technology, the central bankers have gotten more and more powerful. Now, for the, since fiscal 1998, we've had what I call the financial coup d'etat. So in the United States, we have now reported up to $100 trillion that's been moved out, okay? So Dr. Skidmore and I did a study as of 2015, the number was 21 trillion. So at the time Dr. Skidmore did his survey of the 21 trillion missing from the US government, at that exact time, we had $20 trillion of debt. So there was more money disappearing than there was debt. But you lever it up, you take the money out, that's the financial coup. Now that the money's out, you can collapse the, the government, okay? So you're saying the, the central banks would run the monetary policy? So, so and the, the Congress would run what's spent, right? Well, it's the central bankers' owners. So remember, most of the central bankers are privately owned, and these decisions are made privately, you know, by the owners or or by the central banks, but subject to their approval. But remember, the central banks, so in the United States, it's the New York Fed that is the depository for the US government, and it's the Fed member owners who manage the accounts and are the primary dealer for the securities. So if these guys are transacting illegally, it's the private guys who are doing it for them. Mm -hmm. In other words, the government doesn't have the power to make illegal transactions its bankers have to affect those illegal transactions, okay? Okay, so, so now we've reached the point where the central banks are moving in and basically taking control of fiscal policy as well. And what we're seeing, and this is why there's such a big debate about election fraud, essentially the computer systems are controlled um, for the elections and essentially the, the citizens or taxpayers have lost uh, any say. If you look at recent polls over the last 10 years, the citizens want the country to go to the right and the Congress votes to go to the left. And that's because increasingly these p people are controlled and dependent on, um, on what the central bankers want. There's a great interview that Chuck Schumer, the senator from New York, did at the beginning of the Trump administration where he basically said, you know, um, he said, if Trump thinks he's going to contradict or defy the CIA, he's streaming. You know, they have 50 ways from Sunday to get you, right? And traditionally, if you look at the U.S. intelligence agencies, they basically work for the central bankers. So what's happening is we're watching a re-engineering of this fiscal line. And you're basically looking at the central bankers moving to put into place a system that will allow them to extract tax without representation. So that's the trick financially. How do you force the citizens to pay taxes with no representation? And of course, what they're using the pandemic to do is to roll in the system that will make it possible for them to achieve it. So I'm always quoting Naomi Wolf, who's done a very good job of describing this, and she said, vaccine passports are the end of human liberty in the West. And she's right because it's not really, it's ultimately what it's gonna evolve into is a financial transaction system where basically if you don't behave, the central banks can take money right out of your account. They can stop you from transacting. 
So there's a great, I think we talked about it last time, there's a great panel that the IMF did with Karstens, who's the general manager of the Bank of International Settlements, and Jay Powell is the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And uh, they're talking about central bank digital currencies. And Carson says, well, the great thing about central bank digital currencies, if you don't want citizens of another country to transact, you can just shut off their ability to transact. And Powell kind of blanches because he knows what that means is, oh, you can cut off anybody's ability to transact. Yeah. Right. If, if you want complete control, then you want transactional control, but you want transactional control broken down into very, um, into both space and function. So let me tell you what I mean by that. You know, I want the ability to say you can only transact five miles from your home. You know, so I, I, I want you not to be able to travel, okay? So, so your electric car that, or your driverless car can't go more than five miles from your home, okay? But you can't, you can't do anything five, beyond five miles. So one is spatial control, but the other is function. You're not allowed to um, spend money on these items as opposed to other items. So we don't want you eating fresh food. We want you eating you know, synthetic foods from Bill Gates's companies. So you can only transact according to what we dictate is you know, approved. I've always assumed that Bitcoin was a prototype. The thing to understand about the central bankers and, and the group of people, not so much the central bankers, but the people who own them, is they are very disciplined about prototyping. When they want to try something new, they, they generate lots of different experiments. So when I used to work on Wall Street, you know, with Salman Brothers was one of the ones that was famous. If they wanted to figure something out, they'd tell 10 teams to go do it, and they wouldn't tell any of the teams about the other teams. <laughs> you know, and so you'd get this huge competition and war within the firm of 10 teams trying to do this thing. And they figured, okay, one will figure it out. So if you look at the venture capital model, um, you will see in a venture capital fund, they figure out of 30 investments, maybe two will make money, but they will make enough money to make the whole thing highly profitable. Because of the monetary policy, they ran the risks of inflation. So the question is, how can we suck a huge amount of money into non-real assets? They're, they're accumulating land, they're accumulating gold. After the, they came out of the financial crisis, and we're steadily moving money, I believe, out of the fixed income markets trying to buy up the real assets. So how do you keep the retail market away from competing with you to buy up the real assets? Well, if you can get them off in Bitcoin and the cryptos, you know, you're just creating an asset out of thin air, right? I mean, it's energy expensive, but it's thin air. So, so it's much easier. It was extremely important to manage and manipulate the gold market because gold's like the smoke alarm, so you want to keep the smoke alarm from going off. If you can get everybody out of gold and into Bitcoin, it gives you a much more long ramp to sort of accumulate all the real assets without anybody figuring out. And then what do you think you'll, they'll have it run up and then, then crash it or just kind of let it run parallel? So I think Bitcoin's been pumping and dumping, you know, and you know, so think of it as a, in a bull market, you, you pump and dump your way up because remember the, the people transacting make the most money from volatility, right? So when the stock market dropped 35% last year, you know, that's a great opportunity to buy and then run it back up. So remember, if you're gonna build your control system, 
then you need to build a system of central bank digital currencies. And you don't want to do that until you've had sufficient prototyping, but you've also made digital currency fashionable. Okay. And, and to do that, I mean, you can go out and hire all the top developers in the world, but if you just persuade them, they can make lots of money and be free if they do it themselves, you know, and you make it very fun and innovative, like the wild west, they all jump in and they figure and prototype all these things for you. So it's the platform. Then you then build your central bank digital currency system, which now they're working on rolling out. Once you, you kind of gotten different aspects of the blockchain and the energy use figured out. Now, part of this is the smart grid because you need to get everybody onto electrical systems for this to work, right? Vaccine passports will make you free. Crypto will make you free. This will all make you free. And then you get them building your prison for you, right? Because you can't remember, we're talking about a system where very, very few people have central control. The guys who are going to have central control can't build that. They've got to get the general population to build their own prison. And that's, we talked about this last time. The power of this is if you see it, if you see the trap coming, then you can just stop. You can say, you know something, I, I don't want to build the prison. If you look at a lot of the financial fraud over the last 20 years in the United States, the leader of that financial fraud in many cases was J.P. Morgan Chase. And yet statistics show that 50% of Americans bank or have credit cards or other relationships with J.P. Morgan Chase. So I remember in 1998 when I was, um, uh, I first realized what was happening with the mortgage fraud and JP Morgan Chase was at the heart of it. I was writing a, a check on a JP Morgan Chase banking account and I said, why am I banking? At, you know, why am I allowing my funds to be used as deposits to engineer financial fraud? I've got to come clean. I mean, if tomorrow, forget going to Washington and protesting, if tomorrow everybody woke up and said, you know, I'm not going to bank with a New York Fed member bank, the, the change would be dramatic. Because if you look at where we're banking and who we're working for and who we're associating with, you know, we're helping them do this. So remember, this is an all digital system and, and one aspect of this is currency. But the other is a one way mirror where you have 24 seven surveillance and data. So not only can I watch you 24 seven and collect data from your body, data from your mind, data from your activities, but then I can stop you from moving around spatially or I can turn off your ability to transact. So let me give you some examples. So one, it's a control system and two, it's a transaction system, but it's the end of currencies because no longer can you put money in your pocket and walk away. You can only transact, you know, through my company store, if you will. So let's talk about like, so what is a currency really? I mean, it's not, this is more credit at the company store. Like right, saying. this is a credit at the company so store. It's not a currency. Currency, so it's the end of real currency. money would be like store value, right. meet, uh, divisible, transportable, acceptable. So this is right. why I always say, what is it about the word crypto that you don't understand? It's a crypt. It's, it's your death? Yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, after spending quite a while speaking to Matthias, who is that very well-known psychologist from Belgium, I'm going to try to help you understand the what, when, where, why, and how the cabal have been able to do what they've been doing in relation to this fake pandemic. They've done it by what we term as the killer bees. They being blind, bribery and blackmail, 
brainwashing, blood ties, bullying, and burying. And this is completely satanic, what these people have been doing, 100%. At first glance, the task of studying, let alone mastering, all the ancient and modern methods of mind control appears impossibly daunting. Indeed, there seems to be no end of approaches to mind manipulation, both ancient and modern, east and west. Nor will we anytime soon find ourselves lacking for masterminds, black science adepts, deserving of our study. Don't be intimidated. Truth be known, whether gleaned from a recently unearthed Tibetan scroll or downloaded just today off the net, whether the mystical mutterings of some ancient master magi or the latest in highfalutin psychological jargon, all mind control schemings, skullduggery and strategies boil down to the six killer bees. Blind. Sun Tzu taught that the ultimate accomplishment was to overcome your enemies without fighting, defeating your enemy before the actual battle is joined. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, we need to psych our opposition out. This psyching includes obscuring our objective, blinding them to our purpose. Rather than having to resort to bludgeon and blade and bullet, black science adepts prefer to bamboozle and befuddle their enemies with bullshit to frustrate and sow confusion in their enemy's mind, causing them to choke at a vital juncture in a negotiation, to hesitate at mid-stroke during the heat of battle. To accomplish this, we must blind them with emotion and make them doubt their own senses, their perceptions. Ideally, we so blind our enemy as to leave them no option but to turn to us for relief from their confusion, to turn to us for their salvation. Whether a confidence scam designed to separate Aunt Matilda from her purse or a murderous plot designed to separate a bloody tyrant's head from his body, the preparation and execution of such an operation is always the same and always begins with blinding your target to your true intention. This, ladies and gentlemen, is classic Sun Tzu. All warfare is based on deception, when strong appear to be no threat, when on the march make it appear you are still encamped, when drawing close make him think you are still far away, and when still far distant make him feel you are breathing down his neck. The modern English word glamour, meaning beauty, charm and romance, comes to us from the Latin grammar meaning words, especially words used in casting magic spells. As stated in Webster's Two New College Dictionary, the Latin word in medieval times denoted not just literacy but learning in general, including knowledge of such occult sciences as astrology and magic. By the time glamour made its way to ancient Scotland, it had come to mean the ability to control another's mind, hence their fate, through bedazzlement and confusion. Still, today, glamour retains much of its magical meaning. Don't glamorous movie stars and models have a seemingly magical charm to dazzle us? To dazzle an enemy with glamour, to pull the wool over an enemy's eyes, thus to successfully hoodwink them, we call upon those twin handmaidens of mind manipulation they being mislead and misdirection. Thus, no matter how seemingly complex a black science plan, from a skid row confidence scheme to a palace coup, all such operations use this most basic magician's sleight of hand, where we, and I mean figuratively and literally, 
make our enemy follow our finger pointing in one direction while the magic ball, someone's money, their life, heads in the opposite direction. Once we understand this simple magician's principle, ladies and gentlemen, we can then use this unbeatable combination of physical distraction paired with psychological doubt and distress to mislead and misdirect an enemy down whatever blind alley we choose. The simplicity of this principle has allowed it to be used in a thousand different ways down through the centuries. Black science tactics and techniques ranging from the merely tricky to the downright treacherous by street hustlers panhandling their next meal to bold freebooters plotting empire. Again, it first appears that there's an endless number of ways to blind our enemies to our purpose and indeed, it is a formidable list. But the more we study, the better we will become at spotting the similarities and discerning the patterns of successful tactics and techniques used by masterminds down through the ages. Successful blinding tactics and techniques we will soon be calling our own. Which brings us to the next, bribery and blackmail. As Marilyn Manson stated a long time ago, if you give people exactly what they want, they'll kill themselves with it. It only took 30 pieces of silver, roughly $20 American, for Judas to betray the Son of God Almighty. So what chance do the rest of us heathens have that someone close to us can't be bribed into selling us out for a handful of shekels? You see, there's no such thing as altruism, ladies and gentlemen. No such thing as a truly selfless act. We always get paid one way or another. For example, we stop to help a stranded motorist. Why? Because it makes us feel good about ourselves. Because we've been taught from childhood that helping people is what good people do. I help, ergo, I am a good person. So we get paid with a good feeling. Mother Teresa sacrificed her entire life caring for the sick and downtrodden in India. What was her payoff? Well, first, she got the same good feeling you get from helping that motorist. Second, good people go to heaven, the biggest payoff of all. Here then is the key to getting people to do what you want. Always tell them what's in it for them. How they will gain by helping you and or by following your plan. Assume all people are mercenary and proceed from there. And then we come to blackmail. In the words of Francis Bacon, 1561 to 1626, Some things are secret because they are hard to know and some because they are not fit to utter. Which then brings us to blood ties. As the name implies, blood ties tie you to another person or to a group because they know some deep, dark secret about you. Simply put, ladies and gentlemen, blood ties are just another, albeit specific, type of blackmail. Cults, savage street gangs and other killer cadre require prospective members to make their bones, that is, do crimes or commit heinous and taboo acts, up to and including murder to prove their dedication and loyalty. The real purpose of demanding such acts from recruits is to give the person running the show a sword of Democles they can hold over the new member's head. And then we come to brainwashing. Well, I term brainwashing like love. Being brainwashed is a lot like falling in love, with an emphasis on falling. When we fall in love, we tend to overlook obvious flaws in our significant other. Those little things that later on in the relationship will drive us nuts. 
Head over heels in love, we sacrifice our own wants and needs to make the other person happy. Only later will we come to lament all the lost opportunities that promising career we passed up. Soon, the other person begins to change who we are just a little at first. But before we realize it, we are dressing differently, talking differently, thinking differently. We shave our beard or grow one just to please the other person. Ultimately, in a toxic love affair, we alter our identity to please the other person. These symptoms of love mirror the steps of brainwashing. We overlook obvious flaws, both in the message and in the messenger. We sacrifice our own wants and needs to make our brainwasher happy. We change who we are, altering our identity to fit the reality crafted by our brainwasher. And so you can term this to the identity stick. There is a lot of worry today about identity theft. Someone stealing your credit card or your social security number, but brainwashing is the real identity theft. Where does your enemy get his identity? There is an intricate connection between identity and power, ladies and gentlemen. Once you figure out what your enemy identifies with, because what we identify with is our identity, you can then use one or more killer bee strategies to first steal that identity from them and then offer them a new identity more suited to the new reality you have created for them. Ultimately, brainwashing gets its power from the stick, the power to punish the victim. Initially, this brainwashing stick may be actual physical punishment, but as the brainwashing process progresses, physical punishment or incentive gives way to mental punishment, a more subtle and much more insidious stick than that used when we simply bully someone. When I bully, our next killer bee, I punish you with a stick for not doing what I demand. After I successfully brainwash you, I confidently hand you the stick and you punish yourself for not living up to my expectations. Making another person doubt themselves, change themselves, and even punish themselves is ultimate proof you've successfully brainwashed them. And this is the exact textbook case of what's been going on since the cabal rolled out this fake pandemic titled COVID-19. So, ladies and gentlemen, how do we tell if we've been brainwashed? Number one clue, you're afraid to ask questions. Sometimes it's not what you do that proves you've been brainwashed, it's what you don't do. If you ever hold your tongue when you know someone, your boss, political leader, preacher or teacher is dead wrong, or if you catch yourself making excuses for them, trying to help hide or rationalize away contradictions in their behavior, then you are already experienced some degree of brainwashing. As stated by Dr. Haha Lung, it reads, while researching for mind control, I had cause to investigate members of a Muslim cult in Northern Ohio, whose Imam, the leader, teaches them to pray towards Mecca by facing Northeast. Yet no amount of evidence, gloves, maps, showing latitude and longitude is sufficient to convince the followers of this Imam otherwise. More ominous still, his followers, even those in the inner circle who know better, are afraid to question their leader. These followers fear that if they prove their leader wrong on something so obvious as being able to correctly read a simple map, odds are he's also wrong about being able to interpret the slightly more arcane will of Allah. Hopefully, none of this Imam's unquestioning followers know how to pilot a jet airliner, ladies and gentlemen. And the second clue that you've been brainwashed is when you catch yourself doing things you'd never have been caught dead doing a year ago. Not good things, bad and bizarre things. 
For example, if someone convinced you salvation requires you to perform strange rituals like wiping your ass with seven stones or doing an impromptu circumcision on yourself with rusty garden shears, you might be a little brainwashed. So how to prevent yourself from being brainwashed, you ask? First, never stop asking questions. Never bite your tongue. And second, never just go along to get along. Never let them talk you into just pretending. Never convince yourself. It can't hurt to just go on one meeting, to just listen to what they have to say, to just play along for a while. Chapter 1, verse 1 of the Brainwashers Bible. Saying is believing. Believing leads to behaving. And what we do, we become. And third, get a real identity, not a half-assed identity that depends on externals, e.g. on how many body piercings you have, the size of the Bible tucked under your arm, that funny robe or hat you're required to wear, how long your beard is, that foreign language you speak more fluently than your native tongue. Remember, all true power comes from within. And then, of course, let's not forget the bullies, ladies and gentlemen. Often the mind slayer's craft comes down to simply making threat. Mental bullies as stated by Lung Chadai, by directing the first prong of attack into our foe's mind, we might eliminate the need to follow through with an actual physical attack. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, majority makes reality, and it is the rare individual indeed who can stand against the obese obnoxiousness of the mindless majority. Physical bullies, when the threat of force fails, there's always the force of force. The other killer bees, like blind, bribe, blackmail, blood ties, brainwashing, and even mental bullying, all rely on messing with your enemy's head. Physical bullying, on the other hand, actually on the other fist, doesn't mess with your enemy's head, it crushes it. Which is where we come to bury. In the words of Marquis Donitian Francoise Alphonse de Sade in 1797, he was quoted as saying, When society was in its infancy, men distinguished themselves by the amount of brute strength they could muster. Today, at what we fondly refer to as the height of civilization, we do the same, only less directly. And that's where Hassan's rules come into play, ladies and gentlemen. Hassan ibn Sabah, founder of the dreaded 11th century Middle Eastern cult of the assassins, the Hashishin, Khazaria. Now you're starting to catch on, ladies and gentlemen. He taught his followers that all problems could be solved either through one, education, or two, through assassination. Simply put, you should first try to educate anyone who gets in your way. Any official getting in Hassan's way would wake up one morning to find a dagger sticking in the pillow next to his head. Anyone, and there weren't too many, failing to be educated by Hassan's timely lesson were then simply killed. A similar attempt would be made to educate whoever the lucky stiff who was replaced the dead man ad infinitum until someone took the official's position who was willing to be educated. Machiavelli, 1531, said, quote, No prince should be quick to shed blood unless the other course presents itself, and this is seldom the case, close quote. Last but not least, ladies and gentlemen, there's one final killer bee to take notice of, the most important killer bee. This B stands for better, as in, you better watch your ass. And you better study your enemy before your enemy succeeds in mastering these killer bees before and better than you do. I leave you with this final quote. In warfare, the more you can disguise your intent and angle of attack, the better your chances of first befuddling, battering down, and then burying your enemy. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Gray Stanton, and good night. Thank you.
That's this week's podcast episode of Life Down Under. We are also located on our new website, lifedownunder.exposed. Don't forget to join Gray Stanton next week on our final episode for Season 1. Thank you for listening.